0: Well, this morning, as we come to 1 Samuel 15, what we're doing, um, if you haven't been with us, this is going to mark the end of the first king of Israel's uh, reign, effectively the, the end of his reign. So we're going we're to reach the end of Saul's reign. He'll continue to, to operate as king for a bit longer. In fact, it won't be until 2 Samuel that, that Saul actually dies, but here between chapter 15 and next week... Chapter 16, there's a major transition, and that transition is the the fall of Saul and then the the anointing or the calling of David. And so so this week is the culmination of this process that started last week in chapters 13 and 14 with with the foolishness of Saul, and his foolishness is highlighted in the account that we read this week in chapter 15. So Saul proves himself as a foolish king and unfit for the, the crown to lead God's people, the Israelites. And so this is the final act of, of Saul's foolishness. We're going to see his blatant disobedience to the command of the Lord. And it costs him, it's costly, it costs him his crown. If you remember last week, his foolishness cost him the dynasty. So the Lord said, your, your dynasty is over. You, you would have had a king rule forever from your line, but you forfeited that. That was last week. And this week, though he's still the king, though he still has a job, he forfeits the, the, the crown itself. He loses the kingdom, and he is rejected by the Lord. It's a, it's a tragedy. Honestly, what we read this morning—one of the most distressing passages of the Old Testament—the Lord disposes Saul from his position as the royal shepherd of the Lord's people. So, if you have your Bibles, you can turn. Hopefully, you're there to First Samuel 15, and you can follow along. I'm going to read. I'm going to read the whole chapter. So, one, verses 1 through 35 here at the outset. So, follow along as I read First Samuel 15. Is the Lord's command. Verse 4 So Saul summoned the people, and he numbered them in Telium, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek, and he lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart. Go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. Verse 7, "...and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and he devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs. And all that was good, they would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel." I regret that I've made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, and he has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. And then he turned, and he passed on, and he went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul And Saul said to Samuel, blessed be you to the Lord, I've performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, they they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night, And Saul said to him, speak, verse 17, and Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission, and the Lord said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agath, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen better than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, Saul, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Saul turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also, all, and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should regret. Then Saul said, I have sinned, yet, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said to him, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Would you pray with me as we begin? Father, this morning, we, as your people here at the outset, we intentionally, we place ourselves underneath your word for your voice, which which we hear through this, your word. It's powerful. And it's full of majesty. And so we ask, Lord, this morning that by your word you'd speak to us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would grant us understanding and apply this word to us. We do, in fact, need you this morning. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this this chapter breaks down, I think, pretty easily into four passages or four sections. And so we're going to work through these four sections one by one by one by one till we get through. And so first we'll see the war with the Amalekites, verses 1 through 9. Then we'll look at the disobedience of Saul, verses 10 through 23. Then we'll see Saul's repentance, and notice I have repentance in quotations, um, but we'll see that, verses 24 through 31. And then finally, we'll see the tragic ending in verses 32 through 35. So let's begin by looking first at the war with the Amalekites, verses 1 through 9. And so we, th- th- this chapter opens with Samuel communicating the word of the Lord to King Saul, so, so, so Saul hears from Samuel, and Samuel says, The Lord sent me to make you king, therefore you must listen, for, for you've got a job, king. The Lord made you king, and now you're to do what he has for you. That job, it's to strike down the Amalekites. You are to devote them and all that they have to destruction. Do not spare them, but devote everything to destruction. All of the Amalekites are to die, is the command. Now we'll say a word about that in a minute. Okay, but first notice the reason for this command. It's grounded in what the Amalekites did in opposing Israel when they first came up out of Egypt. And so so remember that the history of the Israelites, they're in Egypt, they're oppressed, and the Lord delivers them mightily through Moses and Aaron, and he leads them through the Red Sea, and they come out. And and initially in the wilderness, they're grumbling and complaining, they're hungry, they're tired. Well, in Exodus 17... The first war that Israel comes across is in chapter 17 of Exodus, and it's the Amalekites who attack them, this weak and tired people, the people of God are attacked by the Amalekites. It's about, if you remember, with, with Moses raising his hands. Remember, he goes up on a hill and he takes Aaron and her, and, 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 and when his, his arms are raised, the, the Israelites are victorious, His arms get tired, and they fall, and Israel starts falling. So then Aaron and her, they, they hold up his arms. And Israel is victorious, but that's the battle with the Amalekites. And in Exodus 17, after this victory, Exodus 17, 17, 14, listen to what the Lord says to Moses. The Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So that's in Exodus 17, verse 14. And then Moses builds an altar and, and calls the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So it starts, that's, that's the beginning of the relationship between Israel and the Amalekites. And, and the Lord says, I will blot them out, mark it down, it is sure. It's going to happen because of what they did to my people in coming out of Egypt. And so the Amalekites, the, their reputation that started here continues to be a part of the history of the Israelites. Amalek was a, a people deeply and consistently set against God and his people. Hostilities from Amalek continued. So, so the Israel, they eventually get into the promised land, Canaan under Joshua. And the Amalekites continue to be, to, to be a, 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 an obstacle to them, an, an oppressor, a, a potential conqueror of them. And so as, they, as they're getting ready to go into the land, so you can write this, this passage down. Deuteronomy 25, 17 They're getting ready to go into the land, and in Deuteronomy 25, listen to what Moses says before they enter the land. Here's what he says. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came up out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, and he cut off your tail and those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, remember this, Israel, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord has given to you as an inheritance, when you get in this promised land, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Okay, that's Deuteronomy twenty-five seventeen through 19, I think it is. And so there in Deuteronomy 25, we get a little more background. They attacked a faint and a weary people. They didn't fear God. And so in the time of Samuel and Saul... The Amalekites haven't changed. They were still enemies. Agag and the Amalekites had persisted as enemies of Israel, and more importantly, enemies of the Lord himself. And so here in 1 Samuel 15, the Lord's plan, right? Now there's a king. Rest has been established. They're in the land. Now they have a king, and his plan for the king of Israel to carry out is to blot out the Amalekites. So it's a continuation of a promise made all the way back in the Exodus, and so the word of war Lord comes to Samuel, and Samuel commands Saul, carry out this war, this total destruction. Write down uh, also Deuteronomy 20. The, these are where stipulations are given for this type of war. This is not the only place in the Bible where God calls for this total destruction. Jericho is, is another instance. But when the Lord calls the Israelites to this, and we're going to say a, a bit about this in a minute. But when this happens, Deuteronomy 20, I think it's verse 15 and following, but, but the stipulation is very clear. This is not for the Israelites to benefit from this destruction. Right? You're to destroy everything and take no spoils. This is not for you. This is to totally destroy them. It's the Lord's divine... I mean, this, this is the, the, the nations that, that receive the strictest divine vengeance, judgment. It is the Lord's judgment on these people when this happens. And so the Lord, in his judgment, is wiping out the Amalekites. And so the task... Is Saul's to lead the Israelites to complete, to devote to destruction the Amalekites. And so he receives the task. Saul gets the Israelites ready for war. Notice that there's this, this hiccup or, or this delay where, where those who had, had dealt kindly with the Israelites, the Kenites, happen to be there. And, and, and Saul says, You guys better run. So I think that's, that's God's grace and that, that, wait a minute, you guys, you were kind to us. We haven't forgotten that either. So, so run away. So the Kenites, the Kenites, they run away. They flee, and then in verse 7, Saul and the Israelites say defeat the Amalekites. And Samuel devotes to destruction, all of them except one person, except the king, Agag. He's spared. So Saul spares the king, and then verse 9 tells us that they also spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and of the lambs. This is selective destruction. All that was good, they would not utterly destroy. Okay, you can benefit me? Oh, okay, put that in the keep pile. But all that's worthless and despised, okay, yeah, that, that's fine. No, no need for that. Destroy it. So it's selective. You see the criteria of, of, of Saul and the Israelites? If it can benefit us, keep it. Don't, don't, don't destroy it. If it's worthless, go ahead. Certainly, th- this would have been common practice. Right? This would have been common for, for any king to do. This was normal. But this is not what Saul had been commanded to do. The destruction of the Amalekites was not about what Saul and the Israelites could gain. It was the Lord judging the Amalekites for their evil. And the Lord is going to confront Samuel because Samuel disobeyed. Before we move on, let me, let me make a brief point of application and, and address this. Obviously, this is a, a, a serious issue. Let me, let me make a point of application. That, that point is simply this. Vengeance is the Lord's. I think we see that here. Right? This is why it's beneficial to go through the Bible passage by passage. right? If I chose what I got to preach on, I wouldn't preach on this text, Ever. But this is God's word, and he's given it to us. So, so we have to ask the hard questions. Well, what is this for? There's no way to lessen the horror of this passage. The sound of the words of, of God to Saul that day were terrible. Moments like this in the Old Testament must not be avoided. Right? They must not also, they must not be lifted out of context and caricatured either. We have to be careful not to measure these types of events by these, our modern moral categories Right, and, and judge the Lord as, though, oh, this is genocide or this is ethnic cleansing. but right, To label it as such is to disregard what the Bible itself says about it. The Bible's own evaluation of this event, the Lord has always and will always be the judge of the earth. That, that's who he is and he does what is just and right. And so we have to recognize the difficulty of understanding this, but we also have to recognize that justice was served. The Amalekites received what they deserved. They were a people set on evil. Enemies of God, and the Lord here judges them. I mean, and, and just to make clear, the, this idea of the Lord's vengeance, it, it's not just an Old Testament thing. And of course, we're in a different time and place. There are no, there's no longer a geopolitical people of God. Okay, so there are no earthly kings you know, on earth that are leading God's people to wage war on other peoples. That's not where we are. God doesn't wage earthly war. Right, So any army that says we are the Lord's army and we are, we're wiping out the enemies, okay, that's not God's army. Okay, we're not there anymore. We're in a different time and place. But the Lord's vengeance is, is, is present in the New Testament as well. I'm thinking of, of Romans 12. Listen, listen to what Paul writes in Romans 12. So the end of the book of Romans, near the end, the, the practical part. Listen to what Paul writes in, in verses 19 through 21. He writes, Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That, that's Paul in Romans. And so the question is, Well, what, what in Paul's mind, what enables Christians to love their enemies? What enables Christians to love their enemies? It certainly isn't the idea that God's never going to judge. That's not what motivates them. Never avenge yourselves, Paul says, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine and I will pray. God's eventual judgment is what enables Christians to love all people. Even the enemies. Listen to a man. This is is a theologian who was born in Croatia. Croatia. So, so he grew up with, with these warring nations, with, with Croatia and Serbia, with great ethnic war. He's a theologian. He's no stranger to, to war and to conflict. And listen to what he writes, because this is a powerful statement from a man who's seen this. So listen. I, I, have, a, I have a bit of it at the end of it up here, but, but listen now. He writes, My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance, My thesis will be unpopular with man in the West. But imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been abused, whose fathers and brothers have been murdered. Your point to them, we should not retaliate? Why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. I've got to make them pay because there's no God who's going to make them pay. That's what he's saying. That's why violence thrives. It ta- now listen to this. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent... The idea will invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. That's powerful. This instance with the Amalekites, it ought to remind us that one day, every wrong is going to be made right. It must Every evil done on this earth, every act of injustice will be judged. The price will be paid. I mean, think about it in our nation. Brothers and sisters who are slaves on this land, in this territory. Mistreated as property. Brothers and sisters, Christians. Murdered. Do do you think God's vengeance could could help them? I'm going to love my slave owner. That's the only hope that they can practice nonviolence. Or, or those who have been murdered, the innocent, right? The justice of God is, is the hope for Christians, and it's how we can say, I'm going to love you anyway. You can cut my head off. I'm going to love you. And, and our love is, is what draws people to the Lord. How? That is an unworldly love. Vengeance is the Lord, is the Lord's. And so this is, at the end of the day, one of, if not the main reason that Christians are able to love their enemies that, that God will make things right. We suffer here and now, but, but God will make it right. Well, this leads to the next section, verses 10 through 23. So, so here we see Saul and his disobedience confronted. So Saul, he leads the Israelites to victory against the Amalekites. The word of the Lord then comes to Samuel, and the Lord tells Samuel of his regret. I regret that I've made this man king. Some translations, it maybe says... He, he's grieved. The reason being, I, I regret that I made him king because Saul has turned back from following me. Saul has not performed my commands. And then so Samuel, with this emotional response, he's angry and he cries out to the Lord all night. But then he knows what has to be done. The next day he rises and goes out to meet Saul. And when he gets there, listen to the message he, he's told. He says, yeah, yeah, Saul was here at Carmel uh, uh, he was here, what did he do? Oh yeah, he set up this monument for himself and then he left and he went on to Gilgal. And so, so notice, it's telling, isn't it? Oh, first thing he did after this victory, he came to Carmel and he set up a monument for himself. Then he went to Gilgal to offer offering and sacrifices to the Lord. One commentator says, "...the sequ- sequ- sequencing of Saul's actions, performing an act of self-interest, setting up the monument prior to expressing devotion to God which is what he would do at Gilgal is reflective of Saul's entire life Right? he set up a monument to himself before going to offer sacrifice to the Lord and that's telling so Samuel upon hearing that I'm sure his anger isn't subsided now so he says okay I'm going to Gilgal so when he arrives Saul hears he's coming he says blessed be you to the Lord and he assures him I've I've done the commandment I've, I've done it he goes out to meet Saul and while he's assuring him, I, I did it, Samuel hears something. His ears alert him to something. He hears the sound of bleeding animals making noise. The sheep, the oxen, the fattened calf, the lambs. They're, they're making their presence known, divinely inspired. And so Samuel, hearing these animals, right, aware of Saul's disobedience, he, he asks a question. Oh, okay, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. But if you've obeyed the commandment of the Lord, what's that sound? Do you hear it, Saul? What's that sound? How come I hear oxen? How come I hear farm animals? In other words, Samuel or Saul, I hear you saying one thing, but I hear another thing from the animals. The animals are telling me something than what you're telling me. And then Saul, realizing this point, begins the process of it, excusing himself. Do you see verse fifteen? He says, "They, they've brought the animals." The, the, the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen a sacrifice to the Lord. They, they did it. It was them. We devoted to destruction. That's what we did, but they kept the animals, he says. Saul excuses himself. Notice he, he rationalizes the disobedience, doesn't he? Uh, the, the, the best were spared only in order to offer as a sacrifice to the Lord. Yeah, that's why we kept it. We, we just wanted to offer it as sacrifice. I mean, why, why not give the best to the Lord? He desires sacrifice, doesn't he? Why waste all these good animals that we just got? And so Samuel, upon hearing, having enough of these contorted reasons and excuse-making, Samuel says, stop. Just stop. Be quiet. Let me tell you what the Lord told me last night. I know something that you don't know. Listen to me, Saul. Saul, tell me. He says, tell me. Probably feeling pretty good about himself, his obedience. Verse 17, Samuel reminds the king. So beginning in verse 17, he begins this process of reminding the king that though he was now king of Israel, he could take no credit for it. He didn't do anything to become king. It was the Lord who had taken him from being a nobody of his father's tribe to being the king. The Lord had given Saul that position so that he might serve as the Lord's king. It was the Lord's doing. And, and the Lord had given him a specific mission. And in essence, it was to destroy the wickedness of the Amalekites. And in so doing, his, in, in not obeying his command to destroy wickedness, Saul only increased it. By disobeying the command of the Lord. And so Samuel asks, why did you pounce on the spoil, Saul? You disobeyed the command of the Lord, and you did what was evil. Do you see that? You did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Saul's response, verse 20, I have obeyed. I went on the mission, I brought back Agag, and I devoted the Amalekites to destruction. I obeyed. These people, on the other hand, they're the problem, not me. They're the ones who kept these animals. It wasn't me. And Samuel, unconvinced, was one unwilling to let this king, the Lord's primary political and military representative, get by with partial obedience. He won't let it go, because in Samuel's eyes, and more importantly in the Lord's eyes, partial obedience is disobedience. And so he won't let it slide. And so notice Samuel's response. And then verse 22, he says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offering and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, here's the answer. Obedience is always better than sacrifice. Listening to the Lord is always better than offering these animals. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. In other words, Samuel says, obedience is better than any sacrifice. You can sacrifice all the animals in this world, Amalekites and Canaanites and everyone, and it will never be better than obedience. Obedience is the key, he says. Obedience is the most important thing when it comes to a relationship with the Lord, and you, Saul, have chosen to neglect obedience. You've rejected the word of the Lord, which, as the king of Israel, you should have known better. You ought to obey the command of the Lord, king, and you have rejected it. I mean, Saul here shows his religious incompetence. No number of sacrifices can ever overrule obedience I mean, Saul used his offer of sacrifices to justify his disobedience. Do you see that? I, hope, I disobeyed, yeah, but, but look what I am doing with my disobedience. And he says that they're not on the same level. Obedience is always better. You can't justify your disobedience. One, one commentary on here on the difference between, between obedience and, and these animal sacrifices, he writes, in a sacrifice... In animal sacrifice, a man offers only the strange flesh of irrational animals. That's what's happening. Whereas in obedience, he offers his own will, which is rational or spiritual worship. There's a difference. And God calls to the latter. And so Samuel closes his charge in verse 23, showing the severity. I mean, he he says that what you've done saw is comparable or at least categorically equal with the sense of divination and idolatry. Though externally, it appears like Saul's doing okay. Oh, he spared some stuff to give to the Lord. Okay, that's fine. Great. He's worshiping the Lord. From the onlooker's perspective, Saul hadn't really committed any great evil, but in Samuel's estimation, in the Lord's estimation, the evil that was not seen, it wasn't seen on the exterior, but it was what was happening beneath the surface. Saul had rejected the Lord. He'd rebelled against him, just like the idolaters. That's what he says. He compares it. This is like idolatry. You've rejected the Lord, Saul, had taken it upon himself to alter the commandment of the Lord. I know what he said, but, but this is probably what he meant. Saul had supplanted the Lord's authority with his own. Yeah, I know what the Lord said, but, but this is what I'm going to do. And on the most basic level, Saul had rejected the Lord. And for that, as a result, Saul had been rejected by God. It was over. Saul's fate as king had been sealed. Which leads us to 24 through 31, the, the repentance of Saul... And so upon hearing the, the Lord's verdict from the prophet Samuel, Saul begins this process of, of recognizing what he's done, and, and I think he's recognizing what, what he's actually lost, what it's cost him, his disobedience. And he eventually comes around to confess, and he says, I've sinned. I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord, which, by the way, this is the right thing for Saul to say here. And that's the right thing for him to say. He seems to have heard the charge accurately, and he seems to have accepted his fault. I've sinned. You're right, Samuel, and the reason Saul gives for his sin, for his disobedience, he says, I, fear, I feared people instead of the Lord. I, it was misplaced fear. I, I did what they said instead of what you said, which certainly is possible. I, I don't buy it. Right? I think he's still just trying, trying to resolve the, the issue. He's trying to excuse himself. I mean, after all, he's the king. Who has authority over him? And if someone says, no, 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 don't, you do this instead of that, who is the king to say, well, I'm, I'm afraid of you? Right? So, but, but maybe he's serious. Maybe he's genuine. Nevertheless, As it continues, I think Saul's true colors begin to show. I've sinned and disobeyed, and he says, please forgive me and come back with me. Come back with me to to the gathering, to the worship gathering, to where the sacrifices are being offered. In other words, what Saul's saying, I'm sorry, please forgive me, and and can we just forget about all this that's just happened? Let's just go on like like nothing happened. Accompany me. Come back with me. Let's go back to where the people are. And so in this request, Saul is asking Samuel to do several things that Samuel just cannot do. First, Samuel can't grant forgiveness. Right? There, there, there's a system for that. There are priests to that. He has to deal with the priest. So he's asking Samuel to do something he can't do. But, but most importantly, Saul is asking Samuel to accompany him back to the people. And in so doing, he's asking Samuel to act as though he were still God's chosen king. I mean, Samuel, this prophet, he is unquestionably God's prophet, God's messenger among the Israelites. And his presence with Saul, if they were to go back together, would send only one message to Israel. And that one message was that Saul was still God's chosen king. And Samuel says, I can't do that. I can't go back with you. Your reign as God's king is over. It's been forfeited. You've rejected it and you've lost it. And so he says, "I, I can't go back with you. I will not return with you. You've rejected the Lord. The Lord's rejected you. I'm no longer in your service, Samuel says. In verse 27, a powerful picture of Samuel turns to leave and, and Saul grasps at his, at his robe and rips, it rips, and he has a piece in his hand. I'm sure both are shocked. Well, what's happened? I, I've got it. They maybe lock eyes, and then Samuel says, the Lord has torn the kingdom from you just like that. You got my robe? Well, the Lord has taken the kingdom from you, and he's going to give it to someone else. which we'll see next week. The kingdom is no longer yours, Saul. The Lord has decided, and and you can't change his mind. I mean, that's what he's saying. It's set. He's not like a man who's gonna quickly change his mind or or repent and and, and change. It's been set. It's been settled. You are not the Lord's king. And so finally, in verse 30, Saul makes one final plea, which again solidifies, I think, his true lack of repentance. He says, I've sinned, yet, even though I have, honor me now before the elders, before the elders of my people, he says. My people, and, and before Israel, honor me before them and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. You see that? It's, it's my people, but it's your God, right? That, that shows a, a misunderstanding of what, what he's been called to. Don't dishonor me before my people, is what Saul is saying. It's going to be embarrassing. If I have to go back by myself without you, they'll know. They'll know that something's happened. Please, just, just come back with me. Save face. Help me save face. And what seems like a surprising response, verse 31, Samuel turns back and follows him. But it's not for the same reasons. Notice the tragic ending in verse verse 32. When Samuel gets back with Saul, he calls for King Agag, brought before him. And King Agag, thinking he's escaped the sentence of death, he comes to Samuel cheerfully. Now there's a footnote, probably maybe your translation says trembling. It's not clear what the the, uh, emotion is. But what's clear is that Agag thinks his, his time, he's safe. But right there on the spot, in front of Saul and all the Israelites, Samuel kills the king. He kills King Agag. And in so doing, he completes the task that Saul was unwilling to complete. You see, the whole reason I think that Samuel returns, it's not in order to prevent Saul from facing shame and embarrassment. Instead, I think Samuel's return, if anything, heightens the shame and embarrassment because a prophet does what the king was supposed to do, but wouldn't. The very reason that he was compelled to kill the king is because the king of Israel, the leader of God's people, wouldn't do it. I mean, I can imagine conversations among the Israelites that followed. Well, why did Samuel do that? He's, he's the prophet. He's not supposed to have a sword. We have a king, don't, didn't he know? Why didn't the king do that? Which at the end of the day, I think is exactly the point that Samuel was wanting to convey. There's no king in Israel. At least there's no king who's set on obedience. Therefore, I had to do it because the Lord's will had to be carried out. Verse 34, then Samuel goes to Ramah and Saul goes up to his house. Verse 35, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel did grieve over Saul and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So with the close of chapter 15, Saul's reign as the Lord's king comes to an end. He's, he's going to be a placeholder. He's going to occupy the office for a while longer. But as we'll see next week, the Lord has already chosen his next king. He's going to anoint him next week. Well, let me close with, with four final applications from this. Four things I think we can we can learn. First, I think we see something of the nature of disobedience. I mean, clearly Saul disobeys here. And so I think I think we see in his disobedience a, a warning, a, a precaution for us. And I think the precaution is to, to be warned of the deceitfulness of sin, to be warned of the nature of disobedience. And so some characteristics that I think we see on display here. I think we see blindness. I mean, if you read this the most gracious way possible, you might say, well, okay, Saul just didn't really think he committed sin, right? So, so maybe he's just blind, right? You, the, the, it's clear that he disobeyed, but maybe it's just blindness. And I think we can, we can see that, that blindness is, is the nature of sin. Disobedience always includes some sense of blindness. Sin, hear me, Christian, sin is deceptive. I mean, think about Hebrews 3.13. The author of Hebrews, right, exhorts one another that you may not be hardened by what? By the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 3.13. Sin is deceitful. It's deceptive. Sin is happy to hide in the shadows. It's happy not to be acknowledged by you and still work its effects in your life. I mean, it's happy for, for you, for me to say, well, it's not my sin that's making me so angry. It's the people that I live with. Or it's the people I work with. It's those political conservatives or liberals. They're the ones who are making me so angry. Do you see? That's your sin. In hiding, saying, ha ha, yep, it's all them. It's not you. Don't worry. Right? Sin blinds you, Christian. And if we aren't careful, believe me, we fall prey to the blinding effects of sin. This is why we need God's word that shines light on us and examines us. This is why we need Christian relationships within the local body to to speak into one another's lives. This is why we need a context or a type of relationship that has categories for discussing sin. I mean, my prayer is that we, not that we would harp on one another's sin, but that we would have a relationship that we could say, hey, I'm struggling. Do you see any areas of sin in my life? I mean, is that a category that that you travel in now among church members? It should be. It should be because God has given us one another because you can see blind spots that I, that I may be hardened to. And if you're not loving enough to speak into my life and tell me about my sin, I'm gonna go on being deceived by it. And so you haven't been saved to live this life alone. You've been given brothers and sisters, part of the local church, to help you to see where you're blind. Another characteristic or, or the nature of disobedience, we see the redefinition of disobedience. I I think we see Saul doing this here. And his disobedience is is just, he redefines it so that he actually obeys and doesn't disobey. As long as I change the definition, then I obey. I did what I was supposed to do, mostly. It's okay to spare the king. It's okay to spare the best of animals. I'm I'm actually still obeying. And Samuel's point is that partial obedience is disobedience. I mean, think about a, a, a marriage relationship Husband, how would it go over? I was faithful for forty years. There's just one year in the middle that that I wasn't faithful. I still was faithful, wasn't I, wife? Right? No, that's not how it works. We have one standard, Christian. You're to be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. Your righteousness is to exceed that of the Pharisees, which was only external. Christian, you've been called to obedience. Be careful of cutting corners. Be careful of cutting corners. Another characteristic, the fear of man. I'm not going to say that much here other than to simply say when we fear man and what people will think of us more than we fear God, we will disobey every time. Every time with misplaced fear, if I fear man over God, I'm going to choose obeying man and disobeying God every time. When push comes to shove, those who serve the Lord cannot serve the Lord while at the same time seeking the approval of man. That's what Paul says in Galatians 1. If I were a servant of man, I, would know, I wouldn't be a servant of God. If I, were, if I were about man-pleasing, I've chosen the wrong profession, is what Paul says. They don't go together. The two will diverge at some point. They must. And so, Christian, we ought to aim to live before the face of the Lord. We ought to aim to live before the audience of one and obey Him. Right? He's the one we're living before. He's the one whose who's smile, whose who's pleasure matters, not man. Our lives ought to be shaped, our obedience ought to be shaped and informed by living before the face of the Lord. Thirdly, the priority of obedience. I, I, think, I think we ought to take away from Saul the necessity of intentionally seeking to obey. I mean, we ought to know how to respond when we disobey, so we ought to, to know what it looks like to repent for a Christian. So if, so if you're not a Christian here, hear me say that Christians sin often right? I sin often. So, so I need to know how to deal with my sin, which is repentance. Okay, so we ought to know how to do that, how, how, to, how to repent. But I think we also ought to just intentionally obey and say, okay, I'm going to obey. I don't need to be saying, okay, how did I mess up? How do I need to repent? Okay, how do I fix that? No. You say, okay, let me just, at the forefront, let me obey. And we ought to wake up in the morning saying, okay, Lord, I want to love you and I want to love others today. I want to be intentional today. Help me not to worship the idol of laziness today. I want to love you. Help me not worship the idol of busyness today. I want to rest before you. I want to enjoy you today. I don't want to busy myself with all this other stuff. Help me to love the spouse that that you've given me today. Not not another spouse. Help me to love you and and love my spouse. Help me not be angry today. Help me not to use my words carelessly today. We ought to pray these ways. We We ought to think about this every day obedience, holiness, Christ-likeness ought to be a priority, and we fall short. Please hear me say we fall short, but that doesn't change the fact that we ought to continue to to aim for the standard. I mean, one way to begin is simply confessing your failure to pursue it. That's one way to start. Fourthly, thirdly, repentance bears fruit. We hit on this last week. I'm not going to I'm not going to say much here. Saul doesn't seem to recognize the severity of his sin. And I think he thinks, okay, see, maybe, Okay, let's just gloss over this. Let's pass over it. Let's, let's, let's pretend like I'm still king. Can we just, can we just close our eyes to that and, and move forward? Right? Positive thinking, let's go forward. Right? But repentance bears fruit, and Saul doesn't seem to show fruit. I mean, repentance in Saul's case would look like Saul being more concerned about his relationship with the Lord than what others thought of him, wouldn't it? He's only concerned, I don't want them to think that, I, that, I, that I've lost it. I don't want to be dishonored before them. Repentance, in all case, would, would involve a humble recognition that the Lord's verdict was right. I did disobey. The Lord is right, I did. I deserve whatever consequences come from the Lord. I, I want to repent, I want to make things right, but, but I will rightfully accept whatever comes my way, as, as David did. Remember, David lost his son for his sin. And he said, the Lord's done it. I can't bring them back. Repentance bears fruit. That's what John tells those who come out to be baptized. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't just repent, but but actually show, prove your repentance. Then lastly, the evaluation of the Lord. Notice the last sentence of verse 15. Notice how chapter 15 ends. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. I mean, that's a that's a powerful verse. At the end of this process, the Lord evaluates Saul and the first king of Israel, and the Lord regrets that he made Saul king. He, he's grieved that he made Saul king. Samuel grieved for Saul, but the Lord regretted that he made Saul king. Now, now certainly, none of us have been called to be king of Israel. Okay, in case you don't know, that, that position is occupied currently and will be eternally Okay, king of Israel. right? He's, he's ruling and reigning now, so he's not called us to be king of Israel, but... Christian, you've been called to obedience, and I simply want to say that we ought to let the Lord's response to making Saul king affect us. So the Lord looks at Saul and says, "Ah." and we we ought to think about our lives. What does the Lord think about us? Does he see us striving for obedience, not perfection? But we ought to want to please our Heavenly Father. We ought to want to obey. One day we will be evaluated. Between now and then, we we ought to aim to live lives of obedient children. If you're not a Christian, so so let me make a distinction here. If you're not a Christian, you'll be judged, and you will have to pay for your sin unless you repent of your sins and, and put your faith in Jesus. Okay, so I'm a sinner. Hear me say that. I fall short. I will not be judged not because I deserve it, not because I'm good, not because I'm a pastor. I will not be judged because my claim is that Jesus paid it all. My faith is in Jesus and his death, and his burial, and his resurrection, his vindication. So I'm trusting in Jesus. My judgment was poured out on my Savior. That's what it means to be a Christian. Okay? If you're not a Christian, do you know who will pay, who will be judged for your sin? You will bear it in full. You will pay for your sin, and it will be way worse than what Agag and the Amalekites faced. But the good news for you here, non-Christian, if you're here, hear me, Please. You don't have to pay for your sins. God has made a way. He sent a substitute, Jesus Christ, to die for you. You, non-Christian, wherever you are, Jesus died for you, and if you turn from your sins and put your faith in him, your sins will be forgiven, spotless, clean, and you will be saved. Please, repent today. There's hope for you in the gospel of Christ, and you can have new life. New life, born again, that will, that will exist and extend forever. Non-Christian, I want you to repent. Others here, your family, people who are praying for you, want you to repent and trust in Christ so that you might be with them and the Lord forever. If that's you, talk to me. We're, we're going to sing in a second. Come talk to me. Call me this week. Come stop by the office. But now's your time to respond. If you're a Christian, thank God that he sent his son We didn't deserve it while we were enemies. We all deserve the judgment that's awaiting those who don't trust in Christ. But Christ has died for us, and so we have reason for rejoicing. Let's pray as we close.